the Canucks wrap up their road trip tonight with the first of back-to-back games against the Blues. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Another game day for the team. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined, as always, from the road. Uh, my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance. You can read Drance's work up at The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Get your text in as well, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Drancer, I mean, by any measure, really, an incredibly successful road trip so far for the Canucks, taking five points in three games after that win on Saturday against Dallas. And yet, because of the hole they still find themselves in, because of the reality of the math of the playoff race, the pressure to make it even more impressive tonight and find another way to take home two points is still immense if they want to continue uh, staying alive and and making this playoff chase a reality. Yeah, of course. It's a really simple equation right I mean it's not difficult to understand that five points and eight were they to lose in regulation tonight you know that's 620 really good but not enough for what the Canucks need they need to be at 700 710 over the balance of the season they need the win tonight so yeah it's it's a cruel spot that they put themselves in falling behind early the way they did but you got to give them a lot of credit for how they've played on this trip in particular the defensive side of the game's been really good uh the goaltending's been really good too but that's a that's a sort of standard at this yes. point for the club and Yaroslav Halak will will start tonight so no Demko in net but I, I've really liked particularly the JT Miller lines defensive game their five on five game I've really liked how the power uh, the power kill they, they have a power kill now that they're at 90 percent over the their last eight games how they're penalty kill has functioned over the course of this road trip we haven't seen the types of chances surrendered in bunches the way we saw when the club was struggling at home when last they were in Vancouver we, we've seen something a little bit sturdier I, I, I haven't loved like I don't think these have been overwhelming performances by any means but I've liked the defensive solidity that the Canucks have brought on this road trip that's the sort of thing that they've they, I think they'd gotten away from from a couple for a couple months there. Even as they kept winning games, they were scoring on every second shot. <laughs> like it was, you know, a lot of six five games, um, or even those. Like I think about that Rangers win in New York, where they played it pretty impressively, but it was just a endless litany of chances against, like five alarm chances against Thatcher Demko. We haven't seen that on this road trip. I like that a lot. Big test against uh, the St. Louis Blues. The St. Louis Blues team, by the way, that's not played well. Their their defense is not looking good. They they look gettable for a Canucks team that now faces them in, in a home-and-home home set uh, with, with a lot on the line from Vancouver's perspective. Yeah, we'll talk about the Blues matchup a little bit more in just a second, but you know your point about the defensive results for the Canucks so far on this trip and how, how it's looked different than a lot of what we've seen from the team earlier in the season, and, and one of the things that stands out to me, both at 5-on-5 five five, but especially on the penalty kill as well, is... How much of that improvement defensively, and obviously it's a total team effort, but you can look at it and say that it's being driven specifically by some of the team's top players, right? I mean, we've talked a lot now about 
uh, the job Elias Pettersson is doing on the penalty kill. Bo Horvat's his partner on the penalty kill. JT Miller, who I think has justifiably received criticism for his defensive five-on-five play at different points this year, that line's doing a very effective job at driving play and being a two-way force right now. Quinn Hughes is contributing on the penalty kill. So all of a sudden you have this situation where the team's star players, they're getting it done, they're producing. I mean, Elias Pettersson, two goals on Saturday, including just one of the most phenomenal shots uh, we've seen in a long time from a Vancouver Canuck to score that second one. JT Miller, we all know what he's doing. Bo Horvat's still getting on the score sheet. They're doing it at that end, but I think almost more impressive right now is the fact that they, all three of those guys, and I would throw Quinn Hughes in there as well for the work he's doing on the penalty kill, have really become more than just point producers, more than just offensive players, at least in the moment right now. It remains to be seen how long they can all play at that level. But I think if you are trying to kind of map out you know how how can the Canucks win? Well, they have 15 games left, right? So we're looking at 12 and three. You know, 11, uh, one and two, something like that. Like that's kind of what yep. we're talking about to get into the playoffs. But if you're just trying to map out what makes that slightly realistic, I mean, getting those types of all around performances from the guys at the top of your lineup, you know, your three best forwards and your best defensemen. That's the kind of thing that can that can propel you to one of those marks, and I think it absolutely has to continue if the Canucks are going to go on this kind of streak to end the season. Yeah, and that's going to require more from the Horvat Pedersen Besser line at five on five. You know, I liked their game against Colorado a lot in terms of how disruptive they were. I thought that was Elias Pedersen's maybe his best two way game of the year, but I don't know that they were as much on the front feet front foot anyway uh, against Dallas and Minnesota so I I do think the Canucks definitely are going to need a second line that's driving play a little bit better than that line has on this homestand uh, or this homestand this road trip I'm all over the place this uh, so four and six is really hard on the road flying commercial I I am I am gassed at the moment Jamie and it's clearly showing in my malapropisms the the fact is they need that line to be on the front foot, especially against a Blues team that, as Bruce Boudreaux rightly said, has sort of a top nine, right? He, he, they don't have a top six. They don't have a top line. They have a top nine, and they are dangerous up and down the lineup. I think that's a really tough matchup for a Canucks team that's, you know, down Tyler Mott, down Niels Hoaglander, um, you know, down Matthew Highmore tonight, too. Uh, that's the real interest here for me because I think the Blues' defensive game is trending in the wrong direction. They're not playing with the puck the way that they, you know, we expect them to based on their reputation as, as the Blues. <laughs> but, you know, the fact is, is that their top nine, their forward depth still poses a significant problem for a Canucks team that right now really only has one line consistently moving the river five on five in, in the JT Miller line. And even there, you know, you're in for a tough night because I'd imagine we're going to see an awful lot of Ryan O'Reilly against JT Miller. And that's Never a favorable matchup for anybody in the NHL. So uh, the the Blues pose some problems, even though they've been fading, even though I really don't like their five-on-five form of late. Um, so I'm really curious to see how this game plays out. And, and of course, we'll, we'll get into the goaltending decision, too. Uh, I do think the fundamental challenge here for the Canucks, though, is can their forward depth hold up? And sort of one storyline to track there in in that sort of instance is, is the play of Vasily Colson, who, you know, he hasn't had one of those laser top shelf goals, so maybe we haven't been talking about him, but I think he's been 
phenomenal on this road trip. Like his best hockey of the season, probably in the last three games, uh, creating things late in games in Minnesota, you know, he had a great game. was all over the place against Dallas. He's playing, he's playing like he's tough to handle for opponents. That's the type of thing this team's going to need. In addition to, you know, finding, getting that Horvat line driving play, the JT Miller lines sustaining what they've done and then finding just enough, like just enough from their bottom six to make a difference here and there. Uh, you know, that last part of the equation is sort of what I'm most skeptical of. But I think in the play of Vasily Colson over the course of this road trip, you've at least got the blueprint for what it maybe could look like if the Canucks can get just a little more from that group. Well, the bottom six now with, you know, Mott being traded, Highmore out still, um, you know, Hoaglander still on the shelf, Dickinson still on the shelf. The bottom six looks a lot different and a lot less appetizing for Canucks fans, I think, than it has at different points this year. Pod Colson, it's a good it's a good thing to bring up, and particularly in that game against Dallas. I mean, one of the things that stood out to me was when when it was still just a one goal lead, right? And that's a absolutely vital game for the Canucks, not just to win, but to win in regulation as well. Pod Colson was out there taking a shift with I think four minutes left, right? And that's a big vote yeah. of confidence from Bruce Boudreau in the rookie, and it's one that he's absolutely earned by showing that he can handle those types of situations. There was another moment, and I thought by and large. Uh, the Dallas defense did a pretty good job handling the Vancouver Canucks forecheck, but one of the moments that stood out to me was, you know, Vasily Colson getting in and taking the puck away from Ryan Suter behind the mm-hmm. net, below the goal line, and I mean, that's Ryan Suter. That's, you know, one of the most experienced big-minute defensemen in the NHL. He's 37. He's been playing pro since Vasily Colson was in daycare, right? And and Colson won that battle against him, and it's those moments, right, where you're showing, as you said, it's not a laser top shelf, it's not an incredible deke or a flashy assist or anything Anything like that, but it's doing all of those, uh, you know, quote unquote, little things uh, that Travis Green once talked about with Louis Erickson. But it is doing those little things and showing those details and and demonstrating that he he can be a part of the team uh, having success. It, it really does stand out to me, though, that I mean, again, obviously there's absences and there's people missing from the bottom six, but. When you see kind of, okay, but what Vasily Podkolzin is doing versus who he's playing with in the bottom six right now, I mean, it really emphasizes how much they need to build out that depth, right? Because you have another couple of guys clicking like that on a line, and all of a sudden you feel pretty good about yourself as a three-line team right now uh, instead as, you know, as the Canucks will be lining up tonight. It's it's very, very clear split between the top six and the bottom six for them. Um, uh, the bottom six is the bottom six is problematic. Yes, I mean yeah, extremely. Just where they where they're at right now, it's yeah, problematic. Exactly. And, and, and Pod Colson's the bright spot, but man, you would it, it would be great if he had some help down there as well. Hundred percent, hundred hundred percent. So you get to this, you know, and I, I think the point you're making about silly Pod Colson and and the little things, which like is a term we gotta disbar. From our from our discourse in Vancouver, um, no more little things. But he's he's having a subtle impact or something. I don't see. Know. I disagree. I think we it. have to rehabilitate little things. Like I, I think no, we have I'm, to bring no, it back. No it can't it can't just little be things. the Louis Erickson joke anymore. We got to bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> little confections that these players are making. The um the fact is is that I think the same logic applies to what we've seen from J T Miller on this trip. You know, it hasn't been hasn't been the eight points in three game sort of pace that he was at when he was, you know, really grabbing headlines earlier this month or, or in late February. But I think we've seen his best hockey on this road trip in terms of the two way play, in terms of the defensive ability, in terms of the way he's functioning as a driver. I talked to him a little bit about it this morning and, you know, he was just noting that 
part of it is the games they're playing, the way that the team is playing and winning and, and playing lockdown defense permits offensive players and, and him in particular to let things come to them a little more as opposed to chasing the game and feeling responsible for catching up or, or generating the extra goal because you know they're scoring one. Um, that, the, that when everyone's bought in this way, he can get that offense a, a little bit more within himself. And I thought that was an interesting comment because I, I had a chat with Oliver Ekman Larson. Mostly I was prying in his uh, status. I was like, are you hurt? <laughs> <laughs> Then of course he wouldn't bite, right? No, no NHL no. players never never will bite on that. They're um, you know very conscious of the fact that if they're in the lineup, they're they're fair game, right? They're they're healthy as far as they're concerned. So, but Oliver Ekman Larson was saying something similar, which was the way that they're playing on this road trip has maybe helped him look a little better over the course of the past three games. Put put a ten game stretch in which his pair with Tyler Myers really struggled uh, a little bit behind them because the way that the club's playing defense, things are just sort of coming to him. There's there's not quite as much of that, you know, trying to do too much, trying too hard to reset your game, to get back on the level. And and I thought that was interesting commentary from the two of them because I, I think you're seeing it playing out. And part of that is that the Canucks need to continue to limit what they're surrendering. And, and sort of if I was to comment on the one thing that worried me a little bit on this road trip is that Dallas third period, I thought their defensive solidity that had been so obvious, so evident, so commendable in games against Colorado and Minnesota and Dallas through 40 minutes wasn't really there, right? That third period was Demco time in a oh, very yeah. real way, in, in a way that the wins in, in Colorado and the tie in, in Minnesota was not. And so, you know, we, we, we know that this team can play a certain way and we know that they can play a, a certain other way <laughs> that is not quite so favorable uh, against this blues team that can do some damage that can come at you in waves with three scoring lines you know you really do need to be able to be looking more like they did in dallas in the first 40 minutes or the way they did in colorado and not the way they looked on that homestand and in the third period in dallas that's uh, just a hard way to live particularly given the likelihood i think that we're not going to see um you know thatcher demko play four of the next five, right? We're going to see him play three of the next five. And, you know, I, I think Bruce's commentary today sort of telegraphed that at least one of those Vegas games is probably going to be Halak's uh, or, or it's going to be the Arizona game. But nonetheless, with, uh, you know, a lot of travel, a tired team playing their fourth and sixth tonight with, with just an absolute embarrassment of, of miles logged, you know, they are going to need both goalies to do well, and, and they're going to need to lock it down in front of them because some of their best players, some of their oldest players, some of their key veteran guys, guys like Oliver ekman Larson and JT Miller, they're going to be best suited to winning at this time of the year if the club is playing tidy, tidy in general. And I, I think that's the big challenge for the Canucks is, as they go into this vital stretch with games against the, you know, uh, Blues twice, and then the Golden Knights twice, and then the Coyotes on the second leg of a back-to-back. -back. You, you, you know, you probably need four of those. Uh, sorry, you probably need four wins in that five-game stretch, uh, and two against the Golden Knights. So these are vital games, and they need to lock it down defensively. And, and to just win them. just to uh, catch our listeners up, yeah, as you mentioned, Yarrow Halak will get the start for the Canucks tonight. Of course, uh, coming off the really good win, the really strong performance from the team, but also from Halak specifically against Colorado, and it, it's a major vote of confidence, I think, for Bruce Boudreau to go back to Halak. But it's also 
going to be extremely important. I mean, if if all of a sudden, as we talk about, okay, what has to go right, what has to happen for the Canucks to stay in this playoff race right down to the final games of the season, being able just to get those extra moments of rest for Thatcher Demko is is massive, right? And if Halak's performance against Colorado has now reinstilled that confidence that Boudreaux has in him, and you can actually feel like, hey, yeah, we can give him two out of the next five games, right? Because we still have faith that he's going to be the guy we saw at the beginning of the year and not what we saw in that little two-game blip from him partway through the season. All of a sudden, I mean, you're getting obviously much better goaltending from your backup in that circumstances, and you feel like you might start to get even more out of Thatcher Demko. Now, Demko, of course, incredible against Dallas, right? So you're st- we've still been treated to the you know incredible version of Thatcher Demko very, very often, but if you're just going to get that little you know 2% extra from Demko because you're keeping him healthy and rested and, and perfectly in shape and all that down the stretch, I mean, that's a big development for the Canucks, and I thought it was really interesting to, to see Boudreaux go with Halak tonight. I think it makes a lot of sense, and it could. He still could have a vital part to play in the Canucks season here, down the final fifteen games. Oh, absolutely! Especially because you do need to win these games. You do need to chase what's going on. This is a group that feels pretty confident, feels pretty happy with themselves, feels like they're playing meaningful games, and that matters too. Like it matters how you miss, right? Especially at this point, you know. It's not like the Canucks can lose enough to get into prime draft position anyway at this juncture. So you want them to miss in a way where you learn a lot or as much as you can if you're if you're Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford about this club's or this side's gumption about their ability to grind in games that matter, right? I mean, it matters how you win or lose. It matters how the season concludes at this point from an evaluative perspective, from a, you know, can this core work long-term perspective, from what it tells you about this group as, as a group. Like, but you also still have to be mindful of overtaxing Demko. You know, you have to be mindful of managing the injured status of a variety of players who are playing hurt. You do have to keep in mind the long-term needs of this club, uh, particularly because the playoffs remain, you know, a a long shot, a one in six proposition, uh, which credit to them, right? It could very well have been a one in 20 proposition Mm -hmm. at this point without, uh, without what they've managed to do so far on this road trip, but they're, they're in this spot. They've got a chance. Uh, that matters to the players. I think it matters how they perform the rest of the way. But I, I also think you need to be careful. You don't want to put key core pieces or players like Oliver ekman Larson who are signed for six more years or players like Elias Pettersson who've dealt with injuries and you really, really want to make sure that he gets a healthy offseason. Like, you can't risk that for a one-in-six shot of the playoffs. You know, you have to manage that too from an organizational perspective, you know, with a self-awareness of exactly where you're at while also still pursuing that goal. Well, and the, the good spot, it's a tough spot. It is. You're absolutely right. I think you, especially with a player like Elias Patterson, who is performing really well right now, but as you said, you also, you know, I, I think it's going to be crucial for Elias Patterson to have a fully healthy rested off season, come in in incredible shape in next for next year's training camp and really hit the ground running. Right. So you don't want to jeopardize that. The interesting thing from a goalie perspective is, if Yarrow Halak kind of recaptures his form and, and 
plays as the goalie that we know he's capable of being, you can actually kind of thread the needle on both, right? Where you're giving your team the best chance to win games because you're getting good performances from your backup and you're resting Thatcher Demko, and you're also protecting Thatcher Demko's offseason, right? And making sure you're not putting right. too much workload on him for the future. So that that's, again, depending on what we see from Halak tonight and then the rest of his starts of his year, you might actually be serving both masters with that kind of decision-making, right? By being able to get Halak in uh, just a little bit more frequently, or a lot more frequently, because yeah. we didn't see him for much <laughs> for well, a couple of months there. And that's where it falls on him, too, right? I mean, they need the win tonight. You need it. You yep. absolutely need it. If you come home with seven of eight points, that's massive. Massive. I mean, then then you're talking about getting up into 20% playoff chances and, you know, having a real shot against Vegas. A five and eight, that's good. It's good, but good's not good enough for this team. The margins are so fine. So, you know, you need Halak to play for the team for so many reasons. And... You know, Demko's Demko's one of them. Demko's workload is one of them. But the top line item still, you know, for this team and for these this group of players is can we get as many points as we can get? Um, they need that. They need both of them tonight. They need both of them tonight. And honestly, they probably need it in regulation. And I think there's a dynamic there where. You know, if you lose tonight, it almost feels like you've just you're erasing the really impressive work you did in the first three games, right? And that that's even more deflating than if you took home five out of eight in some other way, right? You're like, man, we we had this incredible run of three games. We feel really good about ourselves. Took five of six, and then oh yeah, because we dug ourselves such a hole, losing this last one basically erases all of that. Uh, looking a little bit more at the matchup with the Blues tonight, the Blues are an interesting team, as you said, they've been struggling recently. They've had a really good record for most of the season. Their goal differential is excellent. But when you look at some of their underlying kind of play-driving numbers at even strength, they're not particularly strong, right? Like, they've controlled well under 50% of expected goals uh, this year. They're kind of bottom 8-7 in the league in that number. They've had very strong goaltending from Billy Huso in particular, who's who's taken that job over in St. Louis. And their special teams has been excellent, especially their power play. And I, I really think we, we talked about the success the Canucks are having on the penalty kill, but just looking at special teams in general, the Canucks have only lost the special teams battle, like outright lost it, finished in the negative on special teams once in their last eight games, right? Every other game they've either won in special teams or at least it's been a draw. That was such a consistent problem for this team early in the season where it felt like almost every game yep. they were spotting the other team a goal or two on special teams, right? It was like, yeah, we're we're going to give up one goal or two goals on the power play, and we're absolutely not going to score in the power play, and somehow we'll try to claw back on five-on-five. On five. All of a sudden now, again, it's only eight games, it's a small sample size and all of that, but just stopping the bleeding in that regard, not constantly giving yourself, digging yourself a hole on special teams has been massive. And I look at this Blues team, if you can make special teams a draw, right? If you can hold their power play in check or go, you know, hey, you get they get one, you get one, something like that, and just make it a draw, you have a chance because five on five recently and to a certain extent for the whole year, this Blues team has been a little bit underwhelming. So special teams, I think, more than ever tonight is going to be one of the keys for the Canucks. Yeah, and, and I mean, that's how the Blues do it, right? The Blues do it as like an old school professional outfit. You know, they've got a lot of experience and they've got – an excellent, excellent power power play, right? They're yes. really good. And they, you know, generate a fair bit in terms of, you know, what they what they create, how much zone time they have. Um, you know, they're 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 probably better as finishers 
to be totally honest with you, than they are in terms of generating just a constant, consistent threat with like a million shots. But they're lethal. They're lethal with the man advantage, a veteran group that knows exactly how to exploit you. And, and they're really good on the PK. They're definitely a top five penalty kill on form, if not by conversion rate. So, you know, the fact is, is that this is a team that, while they're sagging in a way that would seem to favor Vancouver and that Vancouver, they're a team that Vancouver has played pretty well over the years, most notably in the playoffs, in the bubble, you know, this is a team where, yeah, their five-on-five game is not a strength of their team, but it's not a strength of Vancouver's either, right? <laughs> Goaltending, special teams, uh, making do with what you got, that's kind of what the Blues do, that's kind of what the Canucks do, so that sort of negates some of what we're talking about, right? The Blues are a better special team side than Vancouver, which makes this a big test for a Canucks team that has let too many points fritter by the wayside as a result of how they perform with someone in the box. I, I think it's um, it's a really good test for the resurgent penalty kill for the Canucks as well, right? To show to, A chance to show that it's more than just a kind of small sample size blip because, as you said, this has been a lethal, lethal power play. And for that matter, it's a good test for the Canucks power play as well to get it done against a very good penalty-killing team. And that will absolutely be one of the keys to the game tonight for the Canucks against the Blues. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative. Visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. Get your thoughts and questions in ahead of another Canucks game against the St. Louis Blues. Wrapping up the road trip, hoping to take home another two points. Uh, On the other side, we'll continue to set up the game tonight against St. Louis. We'll also talk about some comments Elliot Friedman made about JT Miller's next contract and what it might look like. Keep your thoughts coming in. Lots more Canucks Hour coming up on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. See, I disagree. I think we have to rehabilitate little things. Like, I I think we have to bring it back. It can't can't just be the Louis Erickson joke anymore. we got to bring it back. Uh, (laughs) Little confections that these players are making. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks on a game day coming up against the St. Louis Blues. 4.30 puck drop. Uh, Sat and Riccio will be on with Canucks Central and then the pregame show coming up right after the end of Canucks Hour today. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Get your thoughts in. Be a part of the show. Again, 650-650. Drancer, I mentioned the uh, Elliot Friedman's latest comments about JT Miller and what his future and what his next contract could look like. We'll get to those in a second, but I did want to follow up on something we talked about on Friday's show, which was, of course, uh, the future of Canucks prospect, Aiden McDonough. His NCAA season had ended, and as we detailed on Friday, and as you laid out, the Canucks were going to attempt to sign him to a pro contract, get him to forego his final year of college. Uh, That did not happen. 
Aiden McDonough has decided that he is going to go back for his senior year at Northeastern. As you said, that was very much a possibility, very much the way things were leaning, and that is, in fact, the decision he has made. So an interesting development, but it does not sound by any stretch as if this is closing the door on the relationship uh, with the Canucks just because he's returning for his senior season. No, and it's these are the sorts of things that need to be discussed in a very very restrained way. There's no need to sensationalize all of this and, and get so emotional about it, but these decisions that prospects make become inflated. You know, a player decides not to sign, and people, well, trade his rights. Um, you know, he was never going to be anything anyway. Who cares? You know, or like, <laughs> terrible mistake. You know, people people on all sides make it more than it has to be or should be. And at the end of the day, it's a tickle fight relative to the big picture question of what Vancouver has to do to make sure that the future isn't bleak, right? Considering the state of their prospect court. The organization pushed hard, full court press over the weekend to get Aiden McDonough signed. They wanted to get him signed. I, I think they think it, I think they believe it was a mistake for him to go back. Um, and while the door isn't closed in the relationship, there's no question that when a team wants you to sign and you decide not to, it complicates the relationship. And I, I heard Aiden McDonough, who is a character person, by the way, uh, I've really enjoyed covering him, uh, well-spoken, sharp, uh, extremely hardworking. I heard his commentary on Donnie and Dolly. And so, you know, we'll, we'll leave there. We'll leave it. We'll leave his words to him. But there's no question when a player decides to go back and eschew the team's efforts to sign him that it complicates the relationship and heightens the risk for that team of, you know, that player ultimately deciding to head to August 15th free agency on the conclusion of their fourth season in the NCAA. Um, in the big picture, though, like what, what this matters for, in terms of how this matters for the Canucks, I think you need to look at the state of the prospect pipeline, the fact that Aiden McDonough could have come in immediately and probably helped the Abbotsford Canucks right away if they'd structured the deal that way, or potentially made his NHL debut this this season. Uh, I don't think he would have been helpful on the Canucks' playoff push necessarily. I think that's probably too big an ask for a player with his experience, but I, I have no, there's no question in my mind, at the very least in a bottom six role and with significant power play time, he would have added some serious push to the Abbotsford Canucks. I think that would have been Vancouver's ideal situation would, would be to get him to turn pro, have him on the, on the Abbotsford Canucks roster on an ATO, you know, airdrop McDonough, Vasily Podkolzin and Nick Patan onto that roster for the playoffs and, you know, look out, right. That, that would have been a dream scenario for this club player ultimately wanted to return to play for Northeastern. He'll likely be the captain next season. You know, you look around, Dev Devin Levy hasn't made his decision yet, but especially if Devin Levy decides to stay, you'll, you'll, you'll really begin to understand what, what the draw of remaining at Northeastern was. Uh, Sam Colangelo, the Montreal Canadiens prospect, who uh, was the second leading scorer for Northeastern 2, uh, he hasn't signed yet either. So Northeastern looks like they'll have a really, really good team next year. I think that all mattered to him. I think his you know, view of what was best for his development, this has always been a late blooming player, a player who's wanted to do it a certain way and he had certain ideas about it I think he he was inflexible uh, about those ideas and, and couldn't be moved even when the Canucks did their utmost to convince him to turn pro 
Um, so it's a, it's a complicating it's a complicating thing f- fundamentally. At the end of the day, this is not the the news that Vancouver Canucks brass wanted to get out of the the weekend this situation, and we'll see sort of how it develops. But I, I appreciated his commentary. I hope that turns down the the temperature around the whole thing. And I, I think in in all respects, we need to turn down the temperature around these types of decisions for players. Just because we're talking about the possibility of him going to August fifteenth free agency doesn't sort of make it like a. a potential catastrophe that we're that we're overhyping you know these are things that happen decisions that players make ultimately it's hard to get these guys signed uh it, it isn't easy but it's vital and you know this team has gone through the process repeatedly with with Besser with Hughes with Demko like an awful lot of the talent on this roster has been built through these types of means so we're used to talking about it. We're used to wondering about it. I will say, though, I do think the Lockwood situation. So Will Lockwood obviously went back to his senior year and then signed in Vancouver. The Canucks always, under Jim Benning, wanted to sign these guys after three years. But in Lockwood's case, I don't think there was the same type of push uh, that there was with McDonough. And that's just because of his durability issues, right? The, the way that his college career had gone versus how McDonough's had gone. I think the organization really wanted him to turn pro. And the fact that he sort of decided to dance to the tune of his own fiddle uh, in making a decision to remain at Northeastern for his senior year, you know, it's not... <laughs> Again, I want to be careful about it. Like, it's not a... Doesn't mean he's gone, but there's no way to see this without being super naive, um, without appreciating that it's a complicating factor for this club's prospect pool and for their relationship with a prospect who, you know, at the Athletic Vancouver anyway, anyway we ranked as the organization's, uh, you know, third best player outside the NHL. Well, look, it's... if. It, it certainly um, creates uncertainty, right? That, that's why you try to get him signed now, to remove any doubt, remove any uncertainty there might be about the player joining the organization. And, I mean, first, look, this is entirely 100% Aiden McDonough's decision to make, right? And if he thinks this is the best call for his future and for his life, you know, I certainly have no issue with that. I don't think any Canucks fans should take any issue with that. But you just think about what how it could go, you know, as you said. Northeastern looks like it could have a very, very good team next year. If Aiden McDonough continues to grow and develop as a player, I mean, if he's in the Hobie Baker conversation, right, all of a sudden he could have a whole bunch of teams uh, interested in him, and that could make going to August 15th and becoming free agent very attractive. Now, the Canucks, it's important to remember, will still have a window after Aiden McDonough's last college season, right, after his senior season, to try to sign him to a contract then, get him in the NHL, you know, burn a year of his ELC, all of those things, still a possibility and still an advantage that the Canucks have. But as I said, it just adds a whole other layer of uncertainty to the process and the future. But I do agree with you that the bigger point here is not about, you know, oh, is Aiden McDonough making the right decision or what a disaster it's going to be if he becomes a UFA. It's more just emphasizing how much work this front office needs to do to increase the talent in the pipeline. And I would look at this, you know, we talk a lot about player development, uh, drafting. The best way to do well at it uh, repeatedly is to do it in high volume, right? Like you get a bunch of different players, prospects that you're excited about. You put your best foot forward of all of them. You try to exercise best practices with their development, with signing them, all of that. 
And guess what? Sometimes you can do everything right and a player won't work out how you hoped. That's why you have to have a lot of different options, right? And look, maybe Aiden McDonough will still sometime in the future sign with the Canucks. Maybe he'll go on to be a really valuable contributor for the Canucks. But the way this works is not every draft pick, not every prospect is going to pan out in exactly the way that you expect. So you got to take as many shots as possible. And that, to me, is the takeaway here. Increase the volume of prospects you feel good about players in the pipeline that you feel good about so you're not living and dying with the decision of everyone like Aiden McDonough right like that that's ultimately what has to happen is you just have to increase the level of talent coming through significantly for this team you you need to increase it significantly and McDonough is not going to solve that issue by himself but you know the possibility that the, the fact that you don't now have him under lock and key um does sort of increase the deficit that you're working through as an organization. And I think the stakes for that are massive in this division in particular because of what you've got coming uh, out of Southern California in the years ahead. You know, <laughs> this or this division is already pretty wide open, but, but definitely has a couple of elite teams. The best player in the world plays for one of your opponents. Uh, you know, his running mate is a top five player in the world. So you've got... Big challenges in the short term, and then you've got mammoth ones in the long term with the way that, you know, the L.A. and Anaheim are built, but also the fact that your prospect pool is, like, not as good as Calgary's right now. Right now. You know, the Canucks don't have an answer to Coronado or Peleche. That's a problem. Like, that's a problem that's going to continue to be a problem as the years go by. So, you know, I do think... The NCAA route was one that the organization cited as a way to address that gap. To this point, they haven't landed an NCAA free agent. They, they landed a pretty intriguing CHL UFA in Arshdeep Baines. But, um, you know, I think there's some confidence that there might be a name still to come among the players that are still playing. But, you know, certainly they were in on Brendan Scanlon. They were in on Corey Andonofsky. Uh, ultimately uh, didn't get those guys locked up. And, and now they haven't gotten McDonough locked up. Um, not to say that it's like a crisis that they need to get, uh, you know, working on on these guys that um, uh, this isn't criticism, but it, it does go to show you that, you know, it is going to take an awful lot of work and, and a lot of luck and a lot of recruiting to address this gap, to be more efficient than the 31 other teams in the NHL and win a Stanley Cup. And, you know, it's early on in, in the tenure for Patrick Alvin and Jim Rutherford, but uh, certainly, certainly it needs to speed up in the in the weeks and months ahead if this club's going to try and find a way to, you know, walk that tightrope between not doing the things that we know get you elite talent, right, and still finding and mining talent from the, uh, you know, these sort of different talent pools that the organization has cited, whether it's European free agents or college free agents, and actually land some of these guys uh, and begin to, you know, <laughs> crack open the door on on a future that, we all hope is brighter for this club. Yeah, if the Canucks come up dry on college free agents in, through this cycle, right? It doesn't tell us anything about the process. It's not, oh wow, they really screwed up. They messed this opportunity up. It's not that. It's it's a missed opportunity, right? And you you would rather add talent uh, through that avenue than not do it. But it's the kind of thing, as you said, look, you're competing with 31 other NHL teams. Like that's the nature of bidding on an open market. Is it, it's not just like going to the grocery store and picking up the pieces off the shelf that you want, right? There's 
there's always a chance you're not going to be able to come to agreement with a player. A player's going to like what another team has to offer better. So there's always a chance that you're going to strike out on some players that you really, really like. It, it doesn't mean that the Canucks are going about it the wrong way. But it still would be, obviously, I think from the organization's perspective, disappointing if they aren't able uh, to add any more talent through you know, NCAA free agency in this cycle, especially given how much they've uh, put an emphasis on doing that in their, month, in their few months in charge so far. I did want to talk about JT Miller. Uh, you mentioned Aiden McDonough was on Donnie and Dolly earlier on Check TV today. Uh, and, of course, Elliot Friedman, Hockey Night in Canada, 32 Thoughts, Sportsnet, NHL Insider, was on with Donnie and Dolly as well. And the uh, the quote that I know is getting a lot of attention from Canucks fans on social media and caught my eye as well was Friedman saying that JT Miller's next contract, and remember he still has the one year under contract after this one before he's a UFA, will be in the Mika Zabinijad area. And, of course, that extension for Zabinijad will kick in next year. It was an eight-year deal for $8.5 million per season. Full no-move clause as well. And I've seen a lot of interesting reaction, a lot of intense reaction from Canucks fans. I've seen, I would say, many more people saying, okay, well, if that's the case, then they have to trade him. I've seen a few people say, hey, sign me up right now. Let's go. But more than anything, my kind of reaction is we shouldn't be surprised that that's the number being talked about, right? Like that, that is 100% in line with my expectations for what the next JT Miller deal will be, or certainly what JT Miller and his camp will have as a target number in mind when they start trying to land their next deal, right? Because when you're top 10 in scoring this year and you're playing center and you're having the types of results, you kill penalties, you know, you're a vital part of your team's power play. And you have a recent track record of not being at quite at that level as a producer, but still as a very, very good offensive player in the NHL. Why wouldn't you demand that kind of money? Why wouldn't you demand that kind of term, especially now that you can pitch yourself as a number one center to teams, right? And I know, you know, Drancer, that's not where you see JT Miller's fit long term. You see him more as a winger. But again, he he's playing center right now, so he's going to try to sell himself on the open market as a number one center to teams. I do think it's good just for the the state of the JT Miller conversation in the market to kind of give everyone a baseline for what we're talking about, right? And I think it also helps illuminate why why people are kind of suggesting trading JT Miller in the first place or why that might be an avenue for the Canucks to explore because you're talking about a very, very, very large contract uh, for a player who will be turning 30 when he signs that deal. And that's not the type of thing that any team could undertake lightly and certainly not a team in the Canucks position with their salary cap situation. Um, did you watch the Dallas game over the weekend? The Dallas Canucks game? Yeah. Yes, I did. You did. And what did you think about um what what did you think about uh Tyler Sagan? Yeah, not great. Not great. I, I, I was there live, but I didn't watch him play, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, Look, I think a JT Miller contract that begins when he turns 30 and lasts for eight years is the type of thing that can strangle your effort to build a team in its cradle. And, you know, I, I think it's something that the Canucks, with where they're at, need to avoid. The logic of doing that deal is if it's the type of deal that puts you over the top in, in the front end, on the front end of its, of the contract. And, you know... I mean, I sort of understand that with where this team's window is, like it's not really a situation where you want to wait two, three years because 
Demko is on a team-friendly deal now, and Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson are in prime seasons now. Like, you do need to build a team that can win in the next two years, two, three years. That needs to be your timeline, I think. I think the organization knows that. This isn't a long build. This isn't a tear-it-down build, despite what people sometimes hear when I talk about prioritizing the future. I, I don't think that this team can, you know, tear it down and wait three, four years. But I do think there are some smart things you can do quickly to, you know, reset the the decks as it were and and take your best shot in 2024 or 2025 and you know I don't think a Miller extension is part of that equation from from the perspective of are you from the perspective of like the balance of probabilities that you know if you're if you're really good in 2025 that means you're opening a three or four year window to contend and you need to be mindful of all of those years you know you look around the league you look around at every like really good team you can find you know all of the ones that Chris Faber is going to put his finger on the bell for um and the ones that are in the most trouble are the are the teams that have sort of these types of contracts that are likely to hold them down here. You know, it's not a coincidence. Like the Tampa Bay Lightning, we know, explored getting Stamkos to wave ahead of the expansion process, right? So they're aware of their issues. The Toronto Maple Leafs, we know, explored trading for Brandon Hagel to their second line a punch because John Tavares isn't really driving play anymore. So we sort of know what happens to, to teams that sign these contracts, even really, really good teams. The Colorado Avalanche, they're almost certain to walk away from Nazem Kadri this summer. Uh, they're aware of the risks inherent to signing these types of contracts. The Nashville Predators would be elite if they weren't weighed down by Ryan Johansson and Matt Duchesne's deals. Um, you know, you go up and down the lineup uh, of, of playoff teams here, uh, the Los Angeles Kings and the, and the Dustin Brown contract, which, you know, I'm, I guarantee you they can't wait to use that cap space creatively this offseason even though Dustin Brown remains the you know or has been their longtime captain I know Kopitar currently serves as captain but um, nonetheless so you just have to be so so careful committing that type of cap space to a guy that age and when you pair it with the Oliver Ekman Larson deal uh, you know I think there's a real chance you end up locked into like 15 or 16 million on a pair of players who are you know by year one or two of those commitments from your organization's perspective, not top of the roster caliber pieces anymore. And then you're never going to win the way we all want to see this team win in this marketplace. So, you know, I'd, I'd have a ton of trepidation seeing the Canucks do a deal like that, even while I'm rooting for JT Miller to get his and get that bag. Jay in Calgary texts in, uh, the Canucks are not in a position to take on the risk of a JT Miller eight-year deal. And that idea, just the word risk there that Jay in Calgary texts in, really sums it up for me. And I understand the perspective of people who say, well, it's a risk to trade a player who's as productive and as effective as JT Miller is, right? And there's the risk that the future parts you get back don't end up amounting to anything in the end. That's fair. There, the risk ex- exists on that path, certainly. But there's risk no matter what you choose to do in the NHL. There's no foolproof risk-free method to build a contender in the NHL. And I just think it's important to acknowledge the substantial risk that comes with extending a player at JT Miller's age, right? And it's not just an issue for me of, oh, you know, the final three years of that deal could be really painful. Again, look at Tyler Sagan. Look at Jamie Benn. Look at the other examples you mentioned. Is there a chance that JT Miller remains this productive for the next three or four seasons and the team that signs him to an extension is really happy with the deal for those years? Yeah, there absolutely is. But it's not a guarantee. 
There's risk that the drop-off happens a lot sooner than 35. That's just the reality of being an NHL player. And again, I understand you know, fans want to look for reasons. No, 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 you know, JT Miller's going to keep doing this until he's 34, 35. Again, totally a possibility, but you can't just write off the risk. You can't just write off the substantial, substantial risk uh, that comes with signing that, giving that kind of money to a player when you're in the position the Canucks are in. And uh, Ramsey texts in, I will be more comfortable paying JT $10 million for four years rather than $7 million over eight years. And I understand that perspective, uh, or eight a million over eight million years. Gap That's there. the thing. It, he's not going to take that. He is going to cash in as much as he can, as you said. Good for him. Get paid. But there's there's no kind of magic. Oh, if we just kind of uh, go short term, but give him this. Like, there's no way to square the circle uh, to make JT Miller walk away from eight by eight point five if he thinks he can get that somewhere else. At least not in my perspective. I haven't seen the idea that makes that a reality. No, I, this it's it's. Honestly, this is a watershed moment, a fork in the road moment for a franchise that has pretty consistently prioritized the short term as opposed to managing their books with the with their eyes on the long term. Um, this is one of those deals you have to make with your head, not with your heart. And and your heart, 100% with what you've seen this season, says that JT Miller is indispensable to this team. And I think that's true you know, for this year and probably for next and maybe for the year beyond that. But, uh, you know, I, I think when you look at the balance sheet and, and think it through, you really need to avoid making the type of mistake that was made last summer with Oliver ekman Larson, where, you know, the short-term needs, the short-term desire to compete for a playoff spot, to turn it around quickly is, you know, so strong that it overcomes all reasonable uh, risk assessment in terms of, you know, in the context of answering the question of how this team becomes the best team in the league, the Stanley Cup winner. Um, you know, I, I think you're just taking on far too much risk in, in doing a long-term $8.5 million deal with JT Miller, considering where this team's books are positioned, how little they have coming, the positioning of the teams around them in the division. Like, unfortunately for me, it should be a tougher decision, but I actually don't really think it is. I, I kind of think that a JT Miller extension for this team at this point in time really doesn't make sense unless your goal is just to, you know, make the playoffs a few times and, you know, hope for the best, um, you know, hope Demko can go on a heater in the playoffs and, and give you a memorable run that ends in three rounds or at 13 wins or whatever. If your goal is 16 wins, I don't think it's a hard decision The the club does need to net value there and, and sort of reset the decks and, and try and, you know, get in, get elite talent in the door in, in other ways, or, or they're always going to be stuck in this mushy middle um, which, you know, honestly, for most of the past eight years, they've aspired to and not been able to even crack, but which right now I think they're pretty, they're lodged pretty firmly within and will be lodged pretty firmly within that sort of space again next season without significant changes. You know, my whole, my whole worldview, like pretty consistently on this program, Jamie, my whole worldview is trying to break that cycle, trying to advocate for practices that will help the organization push through that sort of ceiling, uh, which they've kind of been locked in for much of the past decade. Uh, the JT Miller, extending JT Miller would be consistent, however, with almost everything this club has done for the past 10 years. And that's sort of what makes it, I think, a hot button emotional topic for Canucks fans. Um, but from my perspective, it's, you know, the risk is just 
far too significant for my taste. Uh, Canucks game day, 4.30 puck drop against the St. Louis Blues. Sachi Arshaw and Dan Riccio have Canucks Central coming up next, plus the pregame show. Drancer and myself will be back tomorrow, back to our regular time slot at noon. Uh, So please join us then and make sure you download and subscribe to the podcast as well. We'll be back tomorrow. It is the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.